Lord, open our eyes that we might behold the glory of Christ this morning. Use that to change us, we ask. Do not let us leave this place without changing us. Do it, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Restoration kiddos, for the few that are here, let me invite you to meet your teachers in the back as you go and learn about Jesus. I think you're studying Samson this morning, so uh, which is wonderful. Well, uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Restoration Church, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning uh, and next week as well, as the Lord would have it. Uh, and so I know that many of you are tired. You probably stayed up later than usual, but have no fear. My daughter prayed for you last night. She also prayed for me. We were sitting at dinner, and I asked Ella Cade to pray, and she said, uh, she was praying, and she said, uh, she said, God, help, help them be good listeners, and I pray my daddy would preach God good. So by God's grace, I'm going to do my part, uh, and I invite you to do yours. And so as it is January 1st, 2017, can you believe it? Wow. Uh, and with the new year comes resolutions, does it not? So some of you this year want to exercise more, wake up earlier, save more money, get better organized, eat more vegetables maybe, uh, be less angry, be more generous, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Some of us want to stop something. Others of us want to start something. Others of us feel pretty good. And we just want to keep doing more of what we are already doing. But none of us probably want to stay the same. And if you think you're just fine the way you are, that probably is evidence that you need to change. Because none of us are perfect. And so, but today is Sunday. It's the weekend. Who starts changing? Nobody starts changing on the weekend. That waits for Monday. That's what we'll do. We'll wait until tomorrow, won't we? Well, tomorrow never comes. To quote a pastor from several hundred years ago, Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. In other words, tomorrow never comes. Every day you wake up, it is today. And so this morning, we have change on our minds. So I want to ask the question, how do we truly change? How do we really change? My answer right from the beginning is this. True change comes not from behaving differently tomorrow. It comes from beholding glory today. True change comes not from behaving differently tomorrow, but by holding glory today. And I get that from the very passage we read, 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18. If you spend any time with me, this is a life verse for me. I will quote it. In fact, a couple years ago, I preached the very, a very similar sermon to this one on this passage at New Year because I think this verse is foundational for understanding how we delight in the supremacy of Christ and help others do the same. So this is not just individual, but it's corporate. And so that's where I want to look this morning. But before I do that, let me give us a bit of context. And so 2 Corinthians is written to a church, a real group of people in Corinth. And so Paul wrote them a letter. And he wrote this letter to defend his gospel ministry to them. He was being attacked in some ways. And so he's defending his gospel ministry and he's encouraging the church in Corinth to remain steadfast in the gospel. And one of the things he does to help them do that is he reminds them 
of what's taken place in their lives. That's what we were reading in the beginning of chapter 3. This change that has taken place. And so then in verses 7 through 18, Paul reminds the Corinthians how they've been changed. They've not been changed to some external law. That was the ministry of Moses under the old covenant. They've been changed internally by God pouring out his spirit into their lives. That's the, what we call the new covenant. So essentially Paul is saying, if the old covenant, this law, was ineffective to change our hearts, but it still had glory... How much more glory is there in the New Testament or the, the, the New Covenant, the gospel, which is permanent and does change hearts? He's reminding the church in Corinth everything changed with Jesus. Paul is boldly and confidently reminding the Corinthians because of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit now indwells all who trust in Christ alone and begins to change them internally. And how does that happen? Well, through the Spirit. Well, how does the Spirit change us? Chapter 3, verse 18. You'll be well served if you have a Bible to have it open. If you don't, look on with your neighbor. Let's read 18 again. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. That's where I want to focus our attention. And you should know this morning, I don't have three points. I don't have a a nice little outline for you like I normally do. I simply want to do this. I want to interrogate and pummel this verse with questions to help us answer our main question. How do we change? And this is how we should read the Bible. Interrogating it, pummeling it, questioning, asking, what does this mean? And so let's do that. How do we change Our answer's right there. How do we change? Beholding the glory of the Lord. Straight out of the text, there's our answer. We change as we behold the glory of the Lord. True change comes not from behaving differently, from beholding glory. But what does it mean to behold? If that's how we change, what does it mean to behold? Well, it means more than looking. It means more than seeing. It means to linger and to learn, to consider and to think deeply, to gaze adoringly, to pause and to reflect, to wonder and to be curious. This is not easy. It takes time and thought. It takes effort and planning. Think about it like this. It's really easy to see a nice piece of jewelry, say a diamond ring, and offer a passing compliment. But think about the jeweler. What does he do? He takes the diamond, he studies it, he learns about its cut, its clarity, its color, its carrot. He enjoys its beauty, noticing every facet. He sees how it shines and how it sparkles. Then he studies the prongs in which he's going to set that ring and turns it and twists it until it sits just right. And then he holds it up again and he examines it and he adores it. That's more like beholding. The jeweler, we might just see a diamond ring, but the jeweler beholds the diamond ring. And it seems as though everything or most things in our world pull us away from this, doesn't it? You have all good intentions to pray and you start praying and your phone rings. You sit down to read scripture and text messages buzz. Our faces are glued to rectangular screens from five inches to 50 inches. Our social media world is filled with pithy 140-character tweets, blog-sized soundbites, shallow Facebook status updates, 
Instagram tempts us to take that filtered and angled picture just right to show the world how perfect our life is, even though it really isn't. All of this compels us to broadcast what we're doing rather than beholding what God has already done. To be clear, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with social media. It can and often is used and enjoyed, but the danger is real. We're tempted to mindlessly peruse virtual people watch rather than looking at the person, the worth, and the work of Jesus. See, beholding cannot be reduced to perusing and posting. Beholding is marveling, examining that which you intentionally keep before your soul. There's intentionality that requires beholding. It requires discipline and effort. And in a minute, we'll talk more about how we do that, but we have to ask another question first. What is it we are to behold? What does the text say? Verse 18, we behold what? The glory of the Lord. Now, did you notice how many times Paul uses the word glory in this passage? If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, you would see the word glory 17 times. I think Paul's trying to draw our attention to something. Right? So when we read the Bible, we see a repeated word like, oh, that's important. He's drawing our attention to the glory of the Lord. And that's a nice churchy kind of frilly phrase, isn't it? The glory of the Lord. What is that? What is the glory of the Lord? Well, it's a bit hard to define because it's used so many ways in Scripture. It's a noun. It's a verb. It's an adjective. It's something God has. It's something we give. Let me try to narrow down and give us a working definition. Three clues that help us understand what glory of the Lord is. So, It's helpful to to recognize the the root word for glory in the Old Testament simply means weight, something that's heavy. And the root word for glory in the New Testament is where we get the word doxology or doxa. It simply means worth, splendor, beauty, and brilliance. So when we put those two together, our first clue is the glory of the Lord is the weightiness of his splendor, of his worth, of his beauty. Another clue comes from Exodus chapter 33. In verse 18, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God responds by saying, I will make my goodness pass before you. Well, that tells me God's glory has something that is intricately tied to his goodness. Go read that this afternoon, Exodus chapter 33. So we have weight of his beauty, we have have his goodness, One more clue from the book we just studied, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Remember this refrain? Isaiah looks up into heaven and the angels are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his holiness. No, that's not what it says. It says the whole earth is full of his what? Glory. So this tells me the glory of God has something to do with the display of his holiness. The glory of God is the beautiful manifold perfections of God going public for all to see. So those are three clues. Put them together. Here's my working definition. 
the glory of God is the weight of his intrinsic goodness and the display of his beautiful holiness. The glory of God is the weight of his intrinsic goodness and display of his beautiful holiness. It's God is going public, as it were, with his worth, his goodness, and his beauty. And where do we see this glory most clearly? Where do we see it? Drop your eyes down just a few verses to verse 6 of chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts... Why? To give the light of the knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's our answer. So the glory of God is most clearly seen in the face of Christ. And where do we most clearly and uniquely and distinctly see Christ? Go up to verse 4 of chapter 4. The gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's our answer. The gospel is a gospel of glory. Glory of the Lord in the face of Christ. So we behold the glory of the Lord as we stare into the excellencies of the gospel. Think about this, remember? Glory is goodness and holiness. What is the cross? What is the cross? Is it not the public display of God's goodness and His holiness? God, who is just, is also the justifier. The cross is where we publicly, God publicly displays his goodness and holiness that we might see and savor his beauty. That's what the cross is. And this is why when John stares into heaven, the apex of the glory of God, here's what we read in the book of Revelation. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the living creatures and elders sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on earth. For all of eternity we will contemplate and celebrate Jesus. The lamb that was slaughtered for our sin and rose again to reign forever. Throughout all of eternity, we will appear at the cross beholding the glory of the Lord, savoring his intrinsic goodness, marveling at his beautiful holiness as it shines from the face of our resurrected Savior. So if that's what we'll spend all of eternity doing, how do we begin to do that now? So if that's what we're going to do in heaven forever, if we don't enjoy that now, we're probably not going to enjoy heaven all that much. So how do we behold the glory of the Lord? Well, first... We have to believe. Believe to behold. Again, I get this right out of the text. Look there. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. We all with unveiled face. That language of unveiled face is the same language as saying as we all with believing hearts. And again, I get this from the text. Just go up to verse 15. See what Paul says. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over there that is unbelievers' hearts. So Paul is saying to have a veil over your heart is equal to unbelief. So if the veil is ripped off, if we're unveiled, that means it's belief. There's belief. And and how is the veil removed? Well, let's just keep reading. Look at verse 16. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Well, how does that happen, Paul? Well, he tells us. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to look at God. Drop down to the end of verse 18. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. There's our answer. Only when the Holy Spirit removes our heart of stone, gives us heart of flesh, do we truly recognize Jesus as Lord. And only then is there freedom to gaze upon his face for who he truly is. And when that happens, Paul says, we turn. That's the language of repentance. It's this turning to the Lord, turning to Jesus, seeing that he's better than anything sin can offer. See, left to ourselves, we are veiled, we are blind. Chapter 4, verse 4 again. In the case of the God of this world, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the glory, of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Satan wants to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel. We, they might know facts about the gospel. They might understand those facts, but they find no beauty, no treasure in the gospel. And they don't want to. They see nothing precious in Jesus. And there's no desire to. That's what Paul is saying is the definition of a veiled heart, a darkened heart of unbelief. So Satan is not primarily interested in making you miserable. That's not his primary objective for you. He simply wants Christ to look dull and boring to you. He wants you to fiddle with everything And fidget, but never truly focus. Bouncing all over the place, but never stopping to behold. Remember, Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions or how holy your resolutions. If only you'll do them tomorrow. Don't behold today. Distract today so that you delay looking at Jesus till tomorrow. He doesn't want you to behold the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. So what's the remedy? Well, it's not trying to be a better person. You'd still be in the dark. It's not checking off a list of religious duties. That does nothing to create light. Someone needs to rip the veil off and turn on the lights. Verse 6 of chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's our remedy. The maker of light turning on the lights of your soul that you might see Christ for who he truly is. God does what he did in the beginning. Into a dark and unformed creation, God spoke, let there be light. And there was light and there was life. Now God speaks into darkened, unbelieving hearts. Let there be light. And the veil is removed, unbelief is shattered, darkness is swallowed up by the light of the gospel so the sinner's heart can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And when that happens, faith is birthed. And when that happens, we turn and trust Christ. It's what happens. So the Spirit helps us see Jesus is not just true, but he's to be treasured. There's a big difference. Even the demons believe Jesus is true. To read the Gospels. Jesus, you're the Holy One of God. You're the Holy Son of God. They believe he's true. But the Spirit takes truth and makes it a treasure. Then we might find Christ glorious. 
And this is good news. Because the delicious glory of Christ, what we feast upon is what satisfies our souls. So if you're here this morning, you're, you're not sure about Jesus. Maybe your resolution was, I'm going to go to church in 2017. I'm thankful you're here. You made it the very first day. Good job. If you're here, you're not trusting Christ, or you're struggling to meaningfully change, or you feel like you're without hope, let me encourage you not to try to find light in yourself or in this world or try to change your own behavior. Ask God to open your eyes and shine the radiant light of the gospel. Then turn to Christ and behold him. So realize this is critical. The first call of the gospel of Christianity is not behave. It is behold. Think about scripture. John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Think about what we just celebrated, Christmas. The angels show up and say what? Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. Christ the Savior is born. The first call of the gospel is not behave. It is behold. Change comes not from behaving differently, but from beholding glory. Only, and once you believe, you can only then behold. So for those that are here that are trusting Christ, let me give you two ways to behold the glory of the Lord. And the first one and the second one are exactly what you expect. Behold the glory of the Lord by immersing yourself in the Bible. The best advice I can give you, look unto Jesus beholding his beauty and the written word. Those are not my words. They are quoted from John Newton several hundred years ago. Sounds like his ministry was similar to ours. So the question, I'm not asking you, like I know most that are they're members of Russia, yeah, Joey, read the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But do you do this? Do you immerse yourself? Because we cannot behold the glory of God apart from the word of God anymore a chef can cook without food. It just can't happen. But don't hear me telling you to have a quiet time. Don't have a quiet time in 2017. Don't do it. Instead, pick up your Bible and pray with the psalmist. Chapter 119, verse 18. Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. That shouldn't be quiet. That should be marvelous. That should be changing as you study the diamond of God's glory page after page seeing new facets of his goodness all the time. So you'll read of God's fulfilled promises to Abraham and Sarah, retuning your heart to sing and rest in God's faithfulness. You'll remember your sin does not define you because God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. As you, as you read of God speaking to repentant but rebellious Israelites, you are precious in my eyes. You are honored. I love you. Your shame and your guilt will melt as you read of Jesus compassionately caring for outcasts and tenderly talking with prostitutes, remembering Jesus came not for the self-righteous, but for the rebellious. You'll celebrate the beauty of God's grace as you read in Ephesians, in Christ we have redemption, we have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. 
You'll rejoice in the hope of heaven as you read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 and as you read in Revelation of God's people together forever praising the majesty of Christ. That's what reading the Bible will do to you. So I am not telling you, read your Bible to earn God's favor. That's legalism. I'm not saying read the Bible to earn God's favor. I'm saying read the Bible to behold God's face. It's where he's revealed himself. This takes time and effort and planning. So just this morning on our blog, Restoration Church, I posted several dozen Bible reading plans. They're for the diligent that want to read every day and for the shirkers and slackers that only read a couple days. You're covered. There's something there for you. So if you don't have a plan to read the Bible, go to the blog. Pull up the app, click the blog button. There's my plan. Read. Also, let me encourage you, February, during our T2, we're going to teach hermeneutics. We're going to help you better understand how to read the Bible. Come. Even if you think, I know how to do that already. Well, come so you can be equipped to teach others how to read their Bible. So as you read your Bible, don't do it alone. Do it in community. Behold, by believing, behold through reading the scriptures, behold as you live in community. Remember what we are reading It is a letter to who? To a church. A group of people, not isolated individuals. God's glory is too radiant and too multifaceted for us to comprehend it by ourselves. We need people around us to remind us, to open our eyes, to encourage us, to examine and to savor the diverse beauty of God's excellencies. It's like a well, a meal that's so flavorful that you need the chef there to point out, oh, did you taste the cumin? Did you taste that? Oh, yeah, now that you say it, I do. That's what one of the things community does for us. It helps us feast upon Christ. So not living consistently in gospel community will have a dim and diminished view of God's glory. We need each other, don't we? To comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love that surpasses knowledge. And so this beholding in community leads us to behaving. Again, remember what we're reading. It's a letter from Paul to a church to help them behold the gospel and then do what? Behave in light of it. That's what's happening. And so in gospel community, we not only help each other behold the face of Christ, but then we help help each other behave as we behold. We behave as we behold who Christ is and what he offers. And church, it must always be in that order. Behold, then behave. It is not behave. Remember, the call of the gospel is behold. We need to help each other delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And look back over to chapter 1, verse 24. Why is Paul doing this? We work with you for your joy. Paul's working for their joy. We're going to see the same thing in Philippians. And so, church, we fight for each other's joy. That's what, that's what we do. We behave, then we behold, that we might enjoy Christ. So as we ponder and pursue Christ together, exhorting and encouraging one another in joyful gospel obedience, we continually remind each other the holy life is the happy life. It's important that we remind each other that Christ 
The person of Jesus is not just a goal to pursue, but it is a person to enjoy. We remind each other of God's generosity, don't we? And then we encourage each other to be generous. We forgive and offer forgiveness, helping each other rest in the forgiveness that we find in the gospel. We sacrifice for the good of one another as we help each other ponder the sacrifice of Christ for us. We call each other to repentance and we remind each other, I'm working for your joy. Repentance is not this rude intrusion, but it's a lavish imitation. I'm working for your joy. Behold. And I praise God for you, Restoration Church. One of the sweetest things in my life is our church, our congregation. I love my wife more because of you. I love my daughters more because of you. I love the church more because of you. I love Jesus more because of you. We are not perfect. We're deeply flawed. So stick around. You'll get offended. We'll, we'll mess with you. Not on purpose, but it will happen. But by God's grace, he's helping us behold Christ together. I praise God that so many of you are involved in each other's lives. You're in community groups. You're in disciple relationships. You're, you're, you're caring for each other's soul over meals and over text messages and over emails and over phone calls. You're, you're investing in the little ones of our church, helping them behold Christ. That's happening right now in these classrooms around us. So may we never grow complacent here. May we seek to push into each other's lives that we might say to each other, come, come, look. Look at the glory of God. Look at the glory of God in the face of Christ. As we sing, as we pray, as we laugh, as we cry, as we rebuke, as we encourage. We need each other to encourage each other to behold the glory because our first instinct is I need to behave. I need to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. And we need somebody to say, no, 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 no. Behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. And as we do this, What's going to happen? What happens is we begin to behold Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 again. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, all right, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold Jesus, we're transformed to be like him. We become what we behold. We absorb what we mire. Here's the thing. You cannot not behold and you cannot not be transformed it's happening all the time all the time just like a clock was made to tick you were made to behold you were made to worship but in our sinfulness left to ourselves we behold something other than jesus and we're transformed into that thing this is what scripture says over and over and over again it's what we saw in the book of isaiah as we studied it isn't it here's another uh, example from the psalms Says so Psalm 135, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You are what you love. You become what you worship. That's why if you worship Money, you will find yourself being greedy and stingy. If you worship physical intimacy, 
You'll, you'll become self-obsessed more and more and use, only use others for your physical pleasure, whether that's physically or virtually. If you worship power, you'll become scheming and demanding, lording what power you have or think you have over others. If you worship others, you'll do what they do, talk like they talk, dress like they dress, just so you can get their approval. It's what happens. It's how God made us. Fundamentally, our sin does not arise from how we behave, but from what we behold. Sin is not just about our actions, it's about our affections. It's about what we love. And so when we lose sight of the glory of God, we left to ourselves, we're blind to who he is. And so sin, sin is ultimately the fruit of not beholding God and believing lies about him. So we start to believe, just like Eve in the garden and Adam, God doesn't really want me to be happy. So I'm going to do those things he says that he says I shouldn't do. That's where I'll find happiness. So if this is how we sin, so we behold our way into sin. Well, how do we get out? We behold our way out. That's how. And so the glory and the pleasure of sin have to be replaced by a greater glory and a greater pleasure. As I said many times, both when I've met with you all individually and from this pulpit, the primary way we fight sin is not by saying no to something bad. It's by saying yes to something better. We have to understand that. Just like the Old Testament glory was surpassed by the New Testament glory, Christ has to surpass that glory. That's only the place we'll find true satisfaction. So my, my non-Christian friends here this morning, some of you might be saying, well, I've got an awful lot of joy in my life, Joey. I'm pretty happy. Even those things that you say are sin, the Bible says is sin is wrong, I find a whole lot of joy in them. And I'd say, yeah, you're correct. That's why you do them. But I'd also say that as great as you think that joy is, there's a far greater joy to be found. So you may know joy, deep soul-satisfying joy apart from Christ, like we know light of a candle apart from the noonday sun. It gives off light. But once the sun comes out, the greater destroys the need of the lesser. So it is how we fight sin. There might be a pleasure in sin, but once you taste Christ, the greater destroys the need of the lesser. So don't hear me saying you shouldn't sin. I'm saying you need not sin when you behold Christ. So sin does not truly satisfy and fulfill our souls. You know what it does? It only shrinks them so it appears full. That's what it does. So God, friend, is not calling you away from joy. He's calling you into it. Will you turn to him this morning? Will you turn to him? All of us were made in the image of God and we find our greatest happiness and pleasure when we most resemble him. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his exact nature. And when we read of Christ, you see a man who's joyful and happy, don't you? You see a man who is not controlled by his circumstances and he is not controlled by the opinions of others. You see a man who is convinced of his heavenly father's love. You see a man who never wavers and wanes of his love of others. You see a man who's compelling 
It's a life of happiness and joy. It's the image of the life we were made for. But in our sin, we distort that image. We, we, in our brokenness, we look for happiness and pleasures in other things. We look for happiness, start this, stop that. That's not the answer. The answer is to be remade. And this is the good news of the gospel. When we turn to Christ, look, it's what it says. We're being remade into the same image of Christ. Jesus came to remake us in God's image. On the cross, he was broken that we might be full. In the resurrection, he gives us new life and a new love. And he sends the spirit to indwell us, to open our eyes that we might behold Christ. And as we become like him, we're truly alive, truly human, truly satisfied. But how does this happen? How does the spirit change us? Degree by degree. It's amazing that we're being transformed, but it's also disheartening, isn't it? Like, really? Degree by degree? We would much rather a formula. Plug in this behavior, in this circumstance, equals holiness and joy. But that's not how God works. One degree of glory to another. You cannot microwave change. You cannot quickly manipulate Christ. It comes from beholding over time. The trajectory of your life is not made in the big heroic moments, in this in the thousand small decisions you make every day. Will you join us for corporate worship if nothing else is going on? Or will you go out of your way to join us every week? A little degree. Will you use an excuse to miss community group or will you go out of your way to attend? A little degree. Will you pursue comfort? Or deny yourself and serve another a little degree? Will you check your email or Facebook first thing in the morning or behold the face of Christ in the scriptures a little degree? Will you cancel that discipling relationship meeting or get done what you need to get done so you can meet a little degree? Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I'm not trying to guilt you into these things. It's not my purpose. I simply want to show you, I simply want to show you that over the course of time, degree by degree, that's how we change. Our daily decisions are cumulative in the impact upon our soul. Our daily decisions have a cumulative impact upon our soul. And so if we think these little things don't matter, we will drift. And you do not drift in maturity. God brings you one degree of glory at a time, pursuing and pondering Christ. The secret to holiness, the secret to change is always being occupied with Jesus. But some of you are tired and like, God, I want to change. Like, why won't you give me 20 degrees this week? What about 40? What about 90, God? I'm tired. I'm sick of battling with this sin. Would you help me? And I'd say, first, God does do this sometimes. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're trusting Christ, he radically changed you. He brought you from death to life. Don't undermine that. Second, God does this in the lives of believers. It happens. Maybe it's a prayer, a specific scripture, a circumstance, and God radically changes you. It happens. But it's not normal. Why? And I think it's because God is gracious. He doesn't change us 20, 40, 90 degrees at a time because he's gracious. He knows, as we just sang, our hearts are prone to wonder. And if I could plug in X behavior plus Y circumstance equals what I want, well, now where's my trust? 
It's in me. It's in me. And so God says, well, I'm not going to operate like that because I love you. I'm gracious and I'm gentle. And so I'm going to change you one degree of glory at a time so that you can continually grow in humility, dependence, and gratitude. He wants our gaze to be upon Christ. The Lord changes us one repentant degree of glory to another. That's how he changes us. Change is what we call progressive sanctification. Change is not just about a final destination. It's about degrees and direction. And church, let's remember this as we walk with one another. The Lord is often more patient with our sin than we are with another person's. The Lord is often more patient with our failures than we are of ourselves. Don't try to be more holy than God. But let me be clear. Lest you think I'm giving you a license to sin, I am not. This is not an excuse to remain in unrepentant sin. The Bible has no category for, well, well, I'm changing, but I'm only, I'm only three degrees along in the path, and so that change happens at 13 degrees, and so I'll just hang out and keep sinning in this way. The Bible does not have a category for that. When you behold the Lamb, you realize you're not just saved of your sins, but you're from your sins as well. The Spirit indwells you. It's compelling you toward holiness. True beholding never leads to excusing. It never does. It leads to embracing the Savior. And although we will fail and we will mess up, there's godly sorrow. The beholding life is the repenting life. It's the rejoicing life with one another. And though we may change degree by degree here on earth, we look forward to heaven when we will behold the face of Jesus. And as we read in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. No more looking in a mirror dimly. We will see him face to face, the radiant groom looking face to face with his bride, and she is changed to be like him. That's what we look forward to, church. We hope in heaven where we'll see Christ face to face. So how do we truly change? By one degree of glory to another. How do we truly change? Not by behaving differently tomorrow, but by beholding glory today. So, Restoration Church, I have some resolutions for us for 2017. Let's resolve to behold the face of Jesus and the word of God as we read and pray and sing scripture individually and corporately. Let's resolve to be patient with ourselves and with others as we walk alongside them, remembering God graciously and gently changed us from one degree of glory to another. Let's resolve to help each other not focus just on behaving differently, but on beholding glory today. Let's resolve not to excuse each other's sin, but to humbly point each other toward the Savior. Let's resolve to be so occupied with Christ, our resurrected, reigning, and returning Savior, that we boast of Him that others in our community might delight in the supremacy of Christ along with us. Let's resolve to do that this year, that our joy might be complete and God's glory might fill the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Help us remember how we change. Lord, may we gaze upon your beauty in the face of Jesus. We need your help, Lord. Do this, we ask. In the name of Christ.
Amen.